Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In our 90th episode, we meet Justin K. Thompson, production designer on the critically acclaimed BAFTA, Golden Globe, and Oscar-winning feature Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, as well as welcoming back Chris Butler, director, writer, and designer of Leica Studios' latest feature film offering, Missing Link. Yes, indeed, Ben and Steve are back again for another episode of the, um, I guess, still European Squiggly Animation podcast. <laughs> uh, still a little in the dark about that. Yep, we've been granted a, a, a podcast extension. So yes, episode 90, we're in the uh, home stretch. What's getting you excited in animation, or at least not making you furious? What's happening? Um, well... In in terms in terms of animation, I'm I'm, cu- I'm intrigued. I would say I wouldn't say delighted, but I'm I'm intrigued by the Toy Story Four trailer, Ben. Mm. Uh, if that's a thing that you're uh, willing to give your time of day, uh, <laughs> uh, have you seen the trailer for Toy Story Four? I did a little while ago now, but yeah, I mean, it looks like a Toy Story movie. It certainly does, doesn't it? I mean, we've never seen Woody get lost before, or you know, <laughs> uh, end up in a in a marvelous place which has you know some heavenly possibility which will no doubt be turned on its head. I wonder if the benevolent caretaker of this new utopia turns out, in fact, to be maybe not all they seem. I, have you seen the script? I don't. I don't think you can make a claim like that, Ben, without any kind of evidence or you know prior evidence. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I'm, uh, yeah. It it looks like a Toy Story film. Um, it's it's quite interesting that uh, they might give up the uh, the game with this Forky character. Is it Sporky Forky character? Uh, and kind of go. This is how toys come to life. And then once you've done that, then you know, you've kind of spent the uh, any kind of residual magic that the these these films held. So hopefully they won't go too deep into into that kind of uh, territory. I don't really remember the rule of, like, the, the fork character. Like, you just make a thing, and if it's considered a toy, then it can come to life and talk. I don't know if they ever did that in any of the other films. The, there was, a, there was a, a, lot of, a lot of chatter when Mr. Potato Head stuck all of his uh, accessories to a, a pitta, a piece of pitta bread, and managed to walk mm. around, which was a nice funny sequence some wonderful animation in that sequence um but then people got a bit serious about it and they were like well hang on which bits of him are he where's his soul <laughs> got really kind of i doubt it will be um a horrible critical and commercial failure i feel like they even if it does tread some familiar ground i'm sure they know what they're doing as far as creating something that's marketable and merchandisable and will make the kids very happy it looks like it looks like it'll be oh it'll be good won't it it'll be it'll be, it'll be at least good i think um i guess because i i was never s- incredibly invested in the series hmm. 
being so staggered as it was and you know I, I like him fine but it's not i think some people really feel this kind of you know kinship and connection to the films you know hold them on a, on the huge pedestal yeah it's fair enough you know the first one was very groundbreaking but i always just kind of enjoyed it i never really pinned that much else on it so if the fourth entry in the series doesn't live up to the first one it's not really gonna devastate me hmm. better they make a fourth toy story movie than a fourth cars movie which for all i know they've already done <laughs> yeah I, I, you, you've kept your eye off that particular ball haven't you but yeah i'm not sure if the metaphor fourth one i don't think they will be making a fourth one now um uh, mr lasset has nothing to do with uh with pixar uh <laughs> <laughs> might have come with some oh. relief i'd imagine again he was someone who i i never really held in enormously high regard like i was aware of him and it's like oh well that's the name of these various films or whatever but i don't think anything is really lost by getting him out the door no no onwards and upwards mm, absolutely uh what else has been happening in the world of animation and animation news uh dumbo seems to have gone down like a uh lead balloon what a pity (laughs) it it doesn't look that enchanting i have to say it was people are really up in arms about the whole disney quote-unquote live actionifying the classics Mm. and it's not like that's a new thing Oh, no. People have been remaking movies and classic movies and making shitty versions of them or not quite as good versions of them for, you know, forever. For, like, you know, I think Alfred Hitchcock remade one of his own films. Yeah. He's like, ah, f*** it, I'll do it again. (laughs) I had fun. You're the same guy, dude. Yeah. (laughs) It's an interesting one, isn't it, in terms of... uh, I mean, we spoke in the last podcast about the Aladdin remake and... uh, they're they're fine. They're they're not you know um, they they do sort of claw onto that sort of nostalgia market. But um, I think the the issue with this one being that um, the original Dumbo is quite a short film. You know, it's it's nowhere near. Um, uh, I think it's how long is it? Like seventy minutes, uh, something like that. So now an hour and ten minutes long. Uh, and this Tim Burton version is. 78 hours long or something like that and they sort of padded it out a fair bit um should have kept it down to like 75 74 yeah yeah <laughs> shaved yeah, shaved the a bit. last few hours you're like yeah yeah my interest is waning <laughs> and although the whole thing is animated um in terms of obviously the dumbo character and and there's the live action lion king's coming up and everyone's saying it's live action no it's not live action you know fascinating uh I, I would have thought like leaning on the the appeal of the original Dumbo is is it's difficult to top because you have all these wonderful sequences. You know, you have the the um, uh, pink elephant sequence, which was you know absolutely groundbreaking in its day, and the fact that the the original character designs they're all really amazing. I mean, one of the appealing factors of the original Dumbo is the fact that he didn't look like a scrotum. And I suppose the descrotomification of uh, the old classical Disney animal characters may have contributed somewhat to their appeal. It certainly translates better to, like, a plushie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I find it quite weird when they do the sort of photorealistic animals that aren't actually... They don't look like the animals, mm. but they're texturally like the animals. 
I think that pairing tends to date stuff quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know, if you look at something like Scooby Doo, like it's astonishing that that was released in cinemas. <laughs> by like how, I mean, they were having fun with that, like a bit more, but like they so don't go together. It's not the choice. At least with the Lion King, I guess they're still not completely like accurate, but. Like you can tell they've kind of given the characters a little bit of a cuteness injection in very crucial areas. Mm. But uh, I guess they're kind of committing with something that can be, as we have heard over and over again, confused with live action. One of my uh, co-workers is losing her shit because of what the new Sonic the Hedgehog looks like. <laughs> but she's taken it really, like, personally. Yeah. Like, and I guess, like, that was, like, just, you know, she grew up with it. She showed it to me. It does look like shit. To be fair, like it, I, it's a still, but if it's how if it's representative of how it's going to look in the the movie, it just looks unfinished. Like the fur is just not applied properly. Yeah. But if as a not really huge fan of Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, I'd like the games, but I I never really delved into the universe. Um, it looks like Sonic the Hedgehog. It's a blue cartoony hedgehog. Yeah. And what kids today, if they're disappointed about the new Sonic, want to educate themselves on, you should look up the state of Yoshi <laughs> when they made a Mario movie. Or any of them. Yeah. Half of them were just people with stupid haircuts. <laughs> they didn't even give them, like, prosthetic lizard heads. It's like, oh, just comb his hair in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. They don't know they're born, do they, Ben? <laughs> yeah, not at all. I said, there's people who are quite um, displeased by the Detective Pikachu uh, remake as well. Have you seen this? <laughs> this is uh, doing the rounds as well. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, he says on a podcast giving his opinion, but the fact that there's so much opinion going around, isn't there? Um, and all of it negative. Uh, what a what a world. It's either too fairy or it's not fairy enough. Yeah. Well, what can, what can you do? Uh, well, the uh, the organisation that uh, I think has struck the best balance of fairy versus non-fairy are our good pals at Ardman, and they have a new film coming out. they got the uh, Shaun the Sheep 2 trailer. Mm. That looks fun. Shaun the Sheep, I think, is the main sort of thing from Ardman that really just feels like old-school Ardman. Mm. I think because they are generally smaller affairs, I don't really know, but I'm imagining the budget is less than, say, Early Man. But there's just a kind of effortless charm to Shaun the Sheep. Yeah. They just hit, you know, they hit on something that doesn't really date. It doesn't really stop being appealing. You know, the show itself would have started quite a long time ago. It was already on the air by the time I was at, like, uni. Yeah. And I'm, you know, an old falling apart piece of shit now. So... It's it's got staying power. Indeed, and 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 you know the TV series came about what a decade after uh, his original appearance in A Close Shave. You know he's he is a, absolutely a character with staying power and international appeal. You know I, I am I, the trailer looks absolutely fantastic as well. Um, although you know not as good as a live action version would look, but um, you know we, we get what we're given, Ben. No, we can hold out hope. Yeah. Sean the Sheep 3, they go uh, full live action. Yeah. But, it, I mean, I was a little bit kind of um, watching watching the trailer, just to for anyone who's who's not seen it. They're, they're getting involved. It's called Farmageddon, which is by far and away the best title for any film ever made. I'm sorry. 
I'll fight you on it. I had a feeling you'd like that. I, I, it's a, it's just the king of puns. I love puns. D- did you enjoy the um, the uh, tagline? What was the tagline? One small step for lamb. Oh well, I, I thought Steve will like that. I mean, <laughs> that'll put a spring in his step. Well, absolutely. Ben, I mean, if I, if I wasn't queuing up for tickets, so I'm queuing up for tickets now. Just just keep throwing the puns at me. Um, I, I was a little bit kind of the 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 Martian character, the alien character, I should say. Um, does look rather odd and out of place, but if we look back, alien, I dare say. Well, it would be an apt description, but um, and and that kind of made me think, oh, am I gonna am I gonna like this film? And then there was a burp gag. And I was thinking, oh, I think I'm, I think I'm really kind of junior with this thing. And then, but then I just, you know, I laughed at the, I laughed at the burp gag, which is totally out of, out of character for me. Uh, just at the bit of the Serengeti, which really made the, the, you know, it was funny, and then it was, then it just sort of topped itself. Well, I think at the end of the day, it is a kids' show and a kids' series. Like there are going to be kids' jokes in it. You know, there's going to be more kind of, you know, jokes about flatulence or things that are more kind of, you know, for the young'uns. It's not like they sneak in a lot of adult stuff, but they get in some stuff that kids probably won't get so much or they wouldn't necessarily find funny or know why adults find it funny. And not even like innuendo-y stuff, just stuff that's kind of conceptually a bit more geared toward what adults find funny. So I think, you know, of all the things that you don't sort of watch uh, an episode of Hey Dougie, and then be like, oh, well, that was a bit, hmm. They were kind of being a bit simplistic with the language there. You're watching it with a certain set of eyeballs. And I think that Sean the Sheep, you know, has this really good balance of, okay, it's it's got enough going on for the eyeballs of the parents who were taking their kids to see this film. For them to not be, you know, driven to absolute despair. As opposed to, I would say, between 70 and 99% of all the other things their kids like that they have to watch yeah. again and again and again and again. <laughs> so, you know, I, I know plenty of parents who would, you know, delight at um, a couple of burp jokes or something similar if the payoff is, you know, all the rest of the stuff that they get with this kind of film. I mean, also at the end of the day, if, if it turned out to not be the film that changed the world, no one's really going to lose a lot of sleep. Mm. Like, it's trolling the sheep. It'll do what it's set out to do. <laughs> yeah. And it'll continue to exist, I think, for as long as it wants to. That's the thing about, like, you know, appealing to, you know, adults and children alike. You can do it if you're a good enough writer. There's a lot of stuff that can be completely clean that kids wouldn't necessarily appreciate, but adults would get a big kick out of. You could, for example, make an adult series for adults that didn't rely 1,000% on swearing and bare nipples. <laughs> you could, but no one appears to want to f***ing do that. I wonder, I wonder which recently released Netflix series. <laughs> I think if we had, um, if we'd been able to do a podcast closer to when this actually uh, launched, hmm. what would be happening now is something a bit more kind of angry and I dare say more entertaining <laughs> and ranty. That's all kind of bubbled away. And I just sort of feel a bit let down at the opportunity, the missed opportunity. But also what also sort of tempers that is looking at a lot of the online responses and a lot of people haven't been let down 
And it turns out this kind of stuff is what a lot of people just genuinely enjoy and want to see. I, I don't think I'm more elevated in saying I didn't find it entertaining. I'm just—it's just not my sense of humor. It's not my type of entertainment. Well, a lot of people are appreciative of the, you know, the technical art style, and you know, the fact that you know a series has been made and given this kind of wide brief and everything. Um, if anyone's not managed to crack the clues, um, we're talking about Love, Death, and Robots. Um, but a lot of people are appreciative of the, the you know, the technical. Um, display and the variety um, of, of, of the films, which I suppose you know is fair enough. Uh, if that's what you're into, that's that's great. But I'm I'm afraid to say I, I'm I'm with you, Ben. It's it, it it did leave rather a nasty taste in my mouth. I wasn't a massive fan of 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 what I was seeing. It's I think the worst thing about it for me is that every single when you watch so many of them, I, I, I dare say I got through more of them than you. Um, but uh, every time you saw a female character on screen, however they were designed, you'd be like, right, I know I'm going to see their nipples at some point. It's like countdown to it's, the top coming off. And to some for people... For a reason that doesn't serve the plot at all. Indeed, indeed. And to some people, I'm sure that's that's delightful. That gives them something to look forward to. Um but uh, as you say, it doesn't it doesn't really serve serve much besides to kind of you know titillate fourteen year olds. There's one where it's like this is one that people have actually been quite vocal about saying is one of the best. It's such a lame twist. Is it's a it's a girl on the run because she saw a murder. Hmm. I won't spoil the fantastic twist at the end, but the halfway point of this film is a sequence in a strip club where she's like, oh, I'm on the run from witnessing this murder. I better go to my job as a stripper and do, you know, animated strip tease stuff for no f-ing reason, except the, the murderer comes and he's, you know, he watches the show and then resumes the chase when she's done. And that's just like to make the rest of the film her running with her breasts out. I feel like I'm being sort of strong-armed into a situation where I'm criticizing the presence of breasts. I don't really have any issue with them. It's going to come as a huge shock to people. I can I can live with bare breasts on my screen because in life, you know, organically there are scenarios and situations where people don't have their clothes on. It serves a purpose. But just like this is literally like, okay, she's running and it's raining, she's slipping and sliding and you know, jiggle, jiggle, jiggle. Also, the animation of the jiggling of the breasts is sort of remarkable because it has absolutely no correlation to the actual physical like workings of breasts. Like it's animated by someone who clearly has never seen real ones. At one point, she, like, moves her head and her nipples start, like, bouncing up and down independently of the rest of her frame. Like, the rest of the breast isn't moving. The nipples just go on a f***ing jaunt. And I I, I was an old fogey and fuddy-duddy about that kind of thing when I was still relatively young, I guess, when John Kay brought back Ren and Stimpy. He did about six episodes of Ren and Stimpy. But for, like, the Adult Swim audience or the Spike TV audience. And that was like, okay, every episode, you know, we have to find some way of getting them in a room with naked women. 
And I just remember at like 20 or however, I was around that age when it came out, just finding that kind of tacky and lazy. And well, I liked that there were adult bits in the old Ren and Stimpy, but it was also appealing because he didn't lay it on so thick. It wasn't that shameless. And uh, as we found out a year or so ago, that environment it turned out was horribly toxic for several young women who worked there. Mm. So that makes it even worse. And I certainly hope that we're living in enlightened enough times now that the people who worked on these uh, episodes, this um, Love, Death and Robots show, you know, it was all done in a perfectly okay environment. But as also many people have pointed out when looking at the director roster and stuff like that, this is a f***ing sausage fest. Mm-hmm. Mm. And with, you know, Jordan Peele had a great quote about like why he's going to continue to make horror films with mostly black ensemble casts, you know, as opposed to films with white main characters. Like, well, I've already seen that movie. Yeah. We've already seen enough adult animation from just dudes you know, about f***ing robots or monsters fighting each other. Like, it's a little played out. It did feel, I mean, the whole series feels like it's about 15 years old. Yeah. It feels like that, do you remember the Animatrix? You know, when that when that first mm-hmm. came out, that kind of, it feels like it's from that era. It doesn't feel like it's from 2019. And that's a great shame, because a lot of money's been thrown at this thing. A lot of talent has been um, expended as well to create the, this world. It's just that, can you imagine if we'd have had some different voices rather than the same voice, which is, I want to see tits. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's... Tits, robots, fighting, swear yeah. words. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's that kind of, let just give us something, just give us a different voice. Give us, and it says, says the guy on his 90th podcast with the other male, but give us a different voice. Um, I know that's unfair. Sometimes we let Laura Beth talk, but it's, it's, um, we, we need these different voices. It's, it's vital. One of the best things that I've seen is I've been doing interviews for, uh, for the course that I am a part of um, at university. And I have seen more people from a BAME background come to the interviews and say that the film Into the Spider-Verse is what's made them consider a career in animation because they've finally seen something on screen uh, in a mainstream environment that they're, they're looking at and they can relate to and they, they know that they, there's an audience and they, their stories want to be heard and we need more of that kind of thing. As you kind of quasi brought up just then, you know, the series that Laura and I do when we talk specifically about mostly adult animation, the greater percentage of the guests on that particular strand are women, Mm. because women are making much better films at the moment about that kind of subject matter. Yes. And that's something that isn't really being recognized. And that I think maybe people aren't as aware of that, and so they see something like this Netflix show, and they think, oh man, this is really filling a gap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when it's actually just retreading the same. And this is the bit that drives me f-ing nuts. People saying it's like Black Mirror, but animated. Now, I'm not even the world's biggest Black Mirror fan, but yeah. what the fuck show are you watching? It's because the opening credits are kind of the same typeface, and they kind of glitch on and off, and people literally look at that and they think, oh, this is like Black Mirror. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is, that is odd. Maybe they should do Coronation Street or EastEnders with the with the glitchy title sequence. Oh, have you seen what's happened with Coronation Street? It's just like it's just like Black Mirror now. Yeah. Yeah, if it makes people happy. 
You know, there was another uh, adult-ish animation show. It was like a mini-series on Adult Swim called The Shivering Truth. Did you ever see any of that? No, no. It kind of came and went, but the trailer did the rounds in quite a big way, and they put out the pilot. I think it's still online. If you just look up, like, Shivering Truth pilot. And um, I watched it with... I, I, I think I had kind of built up sort of high hopes about it because it wasn't really meant to be, like particularly progressive it was just meant to be kind of weird horror and that was also you know initially the thing that kind of piqued my interest about love death and robots was the sort of horror and bizarre element to it i haven't actually seen all of them there may be a couple of them that would end up really winning me over but um the shivering truth was it's stop motion really nice to look at it has a kind of robot chicken but with proper puppets look to it and the slightly disappointing about at least the pilot episode, I'm not sure if all of the other episodes follow the same pattern, is it's that they're not really stories, they're just streams of consciousness set to animation with slight, the sort of threat of a narrative developing, but then it kind of gets swallowed up by another concept that kind of weaves in and out and... It's quite pretty to look at, but that was a bit of a shame, I guess, because I was sort of hoping for something that could maybe really embrace the storytelling potential of how you could use animation like that. And then there's sitcoms. That's the only <laughs> other one that seems to take flight, is adult animated sitcoms. And um, for its mix of, you know, at times, I think, quite reasonable criticism, something like BoJack Horseman will at least take risks with what it does. There are definitely things that run the risk i think of alienating the people that they kind of build up in the first few years and then they'll do episodes that are quite challenging or quite hard to sit through at least it's not you know just falling back on that thing of like and we can swear if we want to mm. but we can talk about sex somewhere out there there's going to be something some like anomalisa type thing but as series Maybe less depressing than Anomalisa. Fingers crossed. <laughs> but, you know, certainly more different and more kind of, oh, wow, okay, that kind of adult animation. Yeah. Like, genuine cleverness to the plot twists and things. Yeah, it's usually excellent television that just happens to be embracing the craft of animation. A couple of the, um, I'll, I'll move on from the robot thing, but there were a couple that I was like, oh, if I saw that in a film festival, I'd have been like, oh, it was all right. Like, the one that a lot of people said is, oh, watch the yogurt one. That's, that's like, the best one. And that was fine. It didn't rock my world, but it was nicely done. It wasn't trying, I think, as hard, but the, I guess the story felt a bit limp. A lot of them don't really have proper endings. Yeah. They'll have this kind of, like, tales of the unexpected, really weak, predictable twist, and you're like, okay, and now they're going to follow it up with the real ending. And then it, the credits roll. Well, that, that, that was the one that, that kind of, uh, f for me, that was when I was watching it. I was like, well, well, this is this one's quite cartoony stylized. There's there's no way I'm going to see tits in this one. <laughs> and then, <laughs> oh, yeah, they, you're right. They, there they were. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's almost like they, they got a note at some point. <laughs> like, uh, we've noticed that your film entry to our series hasn't included an arbitrary shot of female bosoms. Maybe <laughs> you could go back in and fix that if you wanted to get on the air. Don't know why this person has this voice in this fantasy scenario, but there you go. <laughs> we know that love 
death and all robots they're, they're not compulsory in every shot you don't have to have those in but you must have tits <laughs> yeah an odd show but hey if, you know if you like it and you know love what you love but give us something new as nice as it is that we're pretty much of the same mindset on the show uh, it isn't especially conducive to any kind of lively debate uh, but we're not completely one-sided here in Squigglyville. One of our writers, Steve Cavalier, has put together his own uh, very comprehensive take on the show, one that extols some of the virtues that uh, we're perhaps skimming over here. Regular readers of the site will know Steve Cab as the writer of our 100 Greatest Animated Short Series, one of our most popular strands. Uh, among other features, he's also the author of The World History of Animation, so he has a pretty solid track record as a writer in the field, and he animates himself. So if you fancy learning more about Love, Death, and Robots in a way that isn't just us two whinging about boobies, check out Steve Cab's review over at squiggly.co.uk. Well, as you mentioned, uh, the current generation of budding and aspiring animators, what they certainly seem to love, and with, I would say, quite good reason, is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which uh, came out at the end of last year, and is just about to come out on Blu-ray. I assume also, like, streaming and digital platforms and that kind of thing, but the home media release is a common. So yeah, we didn't really talk that much about it at the time. We talked a bit about it, but we didn't really uh, interview anyone. I think at the time we just had a lot on Elsewise, but that was certainly one that you couldn't miss. Uh, I did eventually get to see it. And as someone who, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm not the biggest Spider-Man fan in the world. I, I've only really seen, I think, one of the more recent live-action films. But of course I know what Spider-Man is, and I really liked how the animation looked in the trailers and stuff like that, and everyone's pretty much universally glowing endorsement of it. it was like, well, I can't really not check this out. Mm. And yeah, it lives up to what people do say visually. I think, you know, in the same way that something like the Lego movie, which will take, you know, the, the established conventions of, you know, what makes animated feature films great, and then just play about with it a bit. And, you know, do some experimentation, the kind of thing that is more commonly done in shorter films. And, you know, these guys just really went hell for leather and just like, no, we're going to make this film look like this film more than anything else. And I think what we're going to get now is, of course, a billion other films and TV shows and short films that look exactly like this film. Uh, That's that's always going to be an issue, isn't it? Whenever something amazing comes out, you know, all freelancers up and down the country, they'll get the phone call and go, we're thinking... Uh, Into the Spider-Verse, something my nephew really enjoyed. Um, Could you make Into the Spider-Verse for £200? You know, (laughs) that's what everyone's going to get um, and have to explain the, uh, you know, although it does sound like a great project, are you f***ing kidding me? £200. (laughs) That's the the knock-on effect. We just have to live with it, I'm afraid. Well, it's going to be like bad for festival curation as well like the number of like things that are just going to try and copy it and you can smell it a mile off Mm. but then of course there's no actual substance to i mean this had a nice story as well i liked the main character a lot i thought the bringing together of the you know different spider men slash women slash pigs was a nice idea it's something that works sometimes when films and tv shows do it more often than not, doesn't really work. I think that the kind of meta, you know, let's take a step out of our own uh, universe and and uh, mingle with the others. 
that's usually a bit cringy. This one dealt with it really well, you know, really kind of nicely. I, I Nick Cage made me laugh, which is always a hallmark of a film that's really going above and beyond. Did he do it better than Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue? Well, it's unfair to compare it to the classics. <laughs> this was something that was written, I think, with heart, and it was mm. sort of paying attention to what it is about the characters in the universes that, you know, people really do enjoy. And it was sort of educational I, uh, for people like me who don't really know how expansive these various, you know, spin-offs and things are, like more so than the pig was like the, the anime girl with the robot that is somehow Spider-Man, you know, <laughs> but I, I think that was great, you know, and, and that they all kind of develop the style that takes these characters with quite a different design approach behind each of them. And they all work together in the same room. Mm. You know, they can all have a chat and a cup of tea and, it makes sense visually. It's not too like disorienting or jarring. It's a successful experiment. And uh, the chap in charge of, I guess, that very element of the film, and certainly one of the main and major contributors to it, is a gentleman called Justin K. Thompson, who we will be hearing from in mere moments. He was uh, the main production designer on Spider-Man. He's also worked on uh, films like, well, the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs films, which are also you know, very visually adventurous, you know, certainly at the time. Um, I remember when the second one came out, we had a long chat about, you know, all the fun they were having with the characters and the mm. environments and stuff like that. Prior to that, or alongside that, he worked on stuff like Star Wars Clone Wars. And various other, I guess he sort of started off in like layout and then kind of worked his way up to production design. Well, I think we can hear a bit more about his overall history from the man himself. Shall we go ahead and do that? Yeah, let's. Superb. Here is Justin K. Thompson, production designer for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I've been working in animation for about, oh, 27, 27 years now. And um, I spent, like, the first half of my career working in TV. And I jumped around um, uh, working on all kinds of different shows at all kinds of different studios. And eventually... I was over at Cartoon Network, and there I worked on, you know, things like Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack and Clone Wars. And then um, somebody recommended me to Phil Lord and Chris Miller, because I guess they were looking for a production designer. And so I went over and met with those guys back in 2005, and um, we made Cloud of the Chance of Meatballs together. And so I've been kind of working with those guys ever since, and um, as far as this movie in particular goes, it was back in 2015, Phil and Chris were trying to figure out like what to do with a Miles Morales film, and um, they called me up and we started talking, and at first I actually didn't want to be involved, <laughs> because I found it too hard to believe that a studio would ever let somebody make a film the way I wanted to see an animated film, a comic book movie look, you know, that they would actually take the risk and actually let the film be really expressive and actually look like a comic book. Um, because I grew up, you know, obsessed with comic books and, um, reading them my whole life and, you know, worked in a comic book shop when I was 14. That was my first job. And so for me, comic books were, were more than just like a fun thing in the background. They were the thing that inspired me growing up. So I was a little nervous when they wanted me to get involved. 
But the amazing thing is the studio, Andy Pascal and Christine Belton, everybody at every level of the studio. And so and Chris just said, hey, we want to see something different and something new. And they gave me so much trust and permission to craft a film that was the way I think of it from the point of view of Miles Morales, um, which, you know, I was from the point of view of a character who was actually in a comic book, from the point of view that if, if you were looking at the world through Miles' eyes, you would see Bende dots and, you know, misprints and offsets everywhere. And you would see patching and line work on characters' faces. And you would see that there's no motion blur. And, you know, and characters would, would, would move and express themselves more like with the hand of the artist in the comic book. And that's what your world would look like. And so the idea of being able to construct a world that really felt like the comic books that I grew up reading and, and to use the animation uh, art form and to be as expressive as I, as I know it could be was just uh, an amazing uh, opportunity. And so once we started down that, that once we once we really started to get going, we just kept trying to push it as far as we could. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of how it started. Well, the uh, the end result is is quite exceptional. Was it close to sort of what you originally had in your head when you first came to them, or was there a bit of trial and error and experimentation along the way? There was a lot of experimentation. Once we started making things, we had to do a lot of even some of the things that seem like the simplest like the offsetting the the sort of CMYK misprint offset that we used instead of a camera blur it was fine on a single image but I wanted to be able to pull focus from the background to the foreground I wanted characters to be able to because it's a movie about Spider-Man I wanted characters to be able to swing from out of focus into focus I wanted objects to go out of focus as they went past camera, but we didn't have any camera focus. So I needed like all these, uh, this offsetting, these techniques that you see in the film. I asked Danny, I said, well, there needs to be motion based offsets. There needs to be camera focus pull offsets. There needs to be, you know, there needs to be um, D depth offsets, all these kind of crazy ways to simulate what you would normally just get, you know, basically for free from a camera lens, they had to invent a tool to do that. And then same thing with the dots. It was the bende dots and the hatching on the characters. It's one thing to do it on a still image, but once we started making it move, we had to do hundreds of iterations, hundreds of tests to try and get it to look right. And so it didn't swim all over the character's face and didn't distract from the performance of the character. I think that was probably the most challenging thing in the film was to get that to to not overwhelm the character's performance. But as far as like how close was it to what I saw in my head, it's probably closer to... Uh, it went, I think, it definitely hit what I saw in my head and went way past it. I think I would have accepted way less because when we started, we didn't know what we could do and what we couldn't. 
And then I think once we start, once I started working with Image Works and Danny Zimian, the visual effects supervisor, once we start, we started working together, and I started to see what was really possible. We, I just kept wanting them to go further with it, and Phil and Chris wanted them to go further, and the directors, Bob Persichetti, the Ramsey, Roddy Rothman, we just all kept wanting them to go further, and so it kind of became this amazing thing that surpassed anything that we we really expected to be able to get away like not that not that we didn't think it could be done we just didn't know how to do it when we started so once we saw what they could do i think the artists at imageworks got even more inspired because they were being given so much permission to do amazing things that they just went even farther than we than I even thought we could possibly do. I was, I'm so blown away by the final result, actually. I guess sort of to, to that, it would be interesting, I think, to hear about what precisely the role of production design kind of entails and how that relationship is with the VFX supervisor and the art director, the kind of, um, I guess, communication you guys have to mm-hmm. have. Yeah, well, in my experience, I mean, I can't speak for every production designer, but production designer, from my perspective, in my experience, is I'm basically, the, the way I like to describe it to people is I'm basically the, the, the architect of the look of the film. Um, my job is from the very, very beginning is to work with the directors and the producers. Ask them, like, how do they, you know, what do they want to see in the film? And they'll give me very broad ideas. Like here, we want them to. We want it to feel sad. Here, we want it to feel happy. And my job is to figure out first with like research and drawings, and whether it's hiring other artists to do those drawings or doing them myself. Um, I basically give direction to artists and and create um, artwork that will show like what it looks like when Miles is sad <laughs> and. Once all that, once that's, um, once the directors feel like I've I've gotten to a point where they're happy with it, then I send it over to Danny Dimian, the visual effects supervisor, and he'll start building it, like models, building shaders, writing software. At every stage, I'm there, guiding him and saying, you know, it should be, you know, brighter, or it should be more yellow or it should be I, I, a lot of times I like to joke that my job is I'm the complainer in chief <laughs> um, because I, I tend to be the, the person in the room who's constantly saying well what if it's bigger what if it was smaller what if it was green what if it was yellow <laughs> and <laughs> and Danny um, and Danny's job is to figure out how to actually physically do those things in the 3D world with his team and so him and I work extremely close together. Um, probably every day we're together all day. Um, I'm giving like my obnoxious art notes and he's the engineer um, who has to figure out what, as, if I'm the architect, he's the engineer. He's the one who has to actually figure out how to build the building, how to actually make it stand up. I just have to do, do a funny napkin sketch and say, it should look something like this, but he has to actually build it. 
as far as the other art directors, um, Dean Gordon was the art director of Lighting and Color. So he works with the color script and works with the lighting keys and reports directly to me. I tell him basically what I want. Like I want this to be like overexposed and I want it to feel sort of naturalistic. I want the light coming in from the right, whatever. And he sort of, um, he sort of creates the artwork and sort of creates the, um, the, the, um, the roadmap, if you will, the lighting keys. Um, and Patrick O'Keefe is the environment, is the art director of environment design. So again, I'll say, I want this set to be really big. I want it to be really vertical. I want it to emphasize verticals. I want it to have this and that and this. And he'll design that, um, work with artists. And ultimately, my job is to orchestrate all of it. And then uh, as it goes through the pipeline, I sit with Danny and we approve the final lighting and we approve the final shot all the way until it's printed on screen and go through DI and all that stuff. So I'm pretty much with the film from the very beginning at its earliest concept stage when it's just an outline and approving the final shot of the film and making sure that the look is consistent the whole way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, uh, the consistency point there, the thing that really sort of bowled me over the most was the point where you bring together all these characters with quite disparate design styles from various different universes Mm -hmm. and find this way of making it all kind of work together. Like it all stays consistent within the environment of the film. And yet, you know, they all kind of have their very defined sort of visual personalities, I guess. I thought that was very impressive. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was fun. I think that was, um, a really neat challenge because I love so many different types of comic books and getting to see all these different types of comic books from 1930s pulp detective comics to like Mad Magazine, Harvey Kurtzman, you know, and like Japanese manga comics, all these different comics that I've grown up reading, bringing them all together and kind of showing that like comic books can be, comic books are so much more than just, you know, Marvel superhero comics. So there, there's this really rich history of different styles um, and different ways of expressing characters in comics. And I think um, what it, what what made it work though was really from a technical standpoint because all of the tools that we developed to create Miles and his world have, you know, just to, to put it into like my layman terms, <laughs> it, it's um. They have knobs on them. (laughs) They have dials. And so the same techniques that are used to create, a lot of the same techniques that are used to create the look on Miles were employed in just a more exaggerated way on someone like Spider-Ham, who we wanted to look like a 2D character. But I was insistent, and I think it's partly what, like I was adamant from the beginning, that all the characters actually had to be made in 3D or they wouldn't hold up technically well together, that they had to actually be variations on a 3D look, that I didn't want any cheating, that I wanted everything to be actually um, like an actual three-dimensional character that they are standing side by side in 3D space, just rendered very differently 
using the same tools in different ways. So Penny, you take down the subsurface shading, you take down the, the specular highlights, you take down all these things that, you know, Miles has on him, and you leave only the flat color behind, and you get something that kind of looks like a anime or manga type look. And then she has some other special techniques that are just for her. All the characters have a few techniques that are just for them, but they're all leveraged off of the original DNA of the look that we use to create Miles. And so I think because they share a lot of DNA, I mean, that's what I think makes it work, but I could be wrong. But that, but I think to me that was sort of like why I think it held together is because they actually share more than it's just, it's, it's hard to see at first glance, but then when you actually really look at it, you can actually see that there actually is a lot of similar techniques just used differently. Do you imagine some of the kind of advancements that you guys have implemented? Do you think that kind of stuff is going to be carried through on like sort of future projects? I'm sure there's definitely going to be a lot of people trying to imitate it. Um, well, one of the things you, well, I I don't I don't know about the rest of the industry, but I would really like to see. I mean, as I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for twenty-seven years. It was a dream come true to be given the opportunity. You know, I, you know, my friends and I in the business, you know, in the animation business, we've been talking about why can't we do something more different in three D? You know, because you've seen, I've seen it in games, I've seen it in short short films. It, it, it's not like we are the very first people to ever try to do something that looks different in 3D. Um, it's just, I think we were the first that got to do it on a big budget major release like Spider-Man. Um, and we had the power of an entire studio behind us. And I think that was the key. Um, Christine Belson, who's the head of Sony Pictures Animation, she is um, really incredible as like someone I've worked with for a lot of people and I have to sort of give her a lot of props because she, um, you know, was a, was a producer before she became the head of before she became the president of Sony pictures animation. She's actually knows everybody's job. She's actually been, you know, she produced, uh, how to change your dragon two and crudes. And so she's made, good films with good filmmakers and she's seen the value of letting firsthand on films that she's made. She's seen that she knows the value of letting artists, just giving them the freedom, giving artists the freedom to make choices and to stand by and take risks and support them and give them permission to do that. And I think it's that permission that she and the rest of the studio gave us that allowed us to make these crazy choices. I really hope that what happens is that the other studios is that other studios are inspired and realize that if they give their artists, there's so many amazing artists in the animation industry. If they give their artists permission to do these kinds of things that they can, um, it really comes down to also those story. We did have an IP. We did have the Spider-Man brand. The fact that it's comic books, we, we were just really lucky that no one had taken advantage of it before. So I kind of feel like all those things kind of came together. Um, my passion for comic books, 
Phil Lord and Chris Miller's amazing sense of comic sensibilities, um, and Rodney Rockman's script, um, Bob Persichetti and Peter Ramsey's amazing eye for camera and animation. Um, and then, and then we had just amazing support from a, from, from the entire studio. And I, I don't, and I think those are the things that I, I really hope that other artists get to have. Um, but it's, it's really, that's why I think we made this, we were able to make this film. It sounds like an absolutely, uh, optimal scenario to be able to do something like that. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. It, it was amazing. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I kept thinking the whole time someone was going to shut it down. <laughs> like, I just guess there's no way they're going to let us make it, actually make this. <laughs> and I think still for the best one, you know, we, I feel like Sony Pictures Animation, um, it feels like we get to make $100 million indie films. Like that's just like literally how it felt the whole time. It felt like we were making an independent film, but we had like a big budget, and and I can say that that spirit is carrying forward to the next films we're doing at that studio because that's the mandate is they all have to look different because we don't have a house style. And so the the next films that are coming out, I've I've already seen some stuff that they're working on. It's amazing. I can't talk about it, but <laughs> I'm really impressed with the stuff that everybody's doing. Thank you very much to Justin K. Thompson, production designer on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, for talking to me there. And you can find out more about our Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse Blu-ray giveaway. Just check out the podcast article and keep an eye on our Twitter and Facebook and such like to be in with a chance to grab it up. Joining me now is stalwart Squiggly Features writer Laura Beth Cowley. Laura, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Sorry, I've been gone for ages. I think the last time we had you on was when you talked to the team who did Bone Mother, which is a recent NFB short film, a stop-motion extravaganza in its own right. It used 3D printing and replication technology and all of that good stuff. You're kind of our resident authority on stop-motion stuff. Well, certainly of the main sort of squiggly core team, you're the one who knows the most. That's concerning. <laughs> <laughs> That's really worrying, but yeah. Well, no, you're I, pretty, I uh, you're pretty entrenched in that world. You'd hope so, but it's one of those things. I think it's with anything. Once you like the further you go into it, you're like, oh, there's so much I don't know. <laughs> I've had a, like a real, uh, what's the word, like crisis of faith in the last couple of months of like, because uh, my supervisors and stuff keep referring to me as like an expert in my area, and I'm like, oh god, that seems like sacrilegious. <laughs> well, I know more than you. <laughs> but so do most people <laughs> like yeah i guess that's sort of the um the sliding scale of being an expert is just what room you're in <laughs> at yeah. a given time that sort of determines one's expertise i think what you have is a kind of healthy uh version of what uh the youth today are calling imposter syndrome which is when we you know find ourselves going up in the ranks of our industries and realizing wait but it's just me you know, how could I be, you know, an expert or whatever? The problem with something like these things becoming common parlance is that people are now, like, misusing that term. They're not sort of using it in the way that applies, which is what you've just described. They're just using it to, like, say, hey, look at my artwork. 
Uh, I'm such an imposter. Give me compliments. It's really awkward though when like I'm really oblivious to that kind of stuff. I'm really literal. So when someone's like, "Oh, I'm not really good," I'm like, "Oh yeah, you have a long way to go." Yeah, I, I have a similar sort of like response, I guess. When I because I think because of the position that you and I often sort of find ourselves in, uh, you know, especially that uh, now that I do teaching as well, so I kind of feel like you know, well, if someone is actually asking something mm. i kind of treat it as though i'm i'm actually giving a critical evaluation of some work i'm like oh yeah no i can see why this is an area from <laughs> and their face just falls mm. like, oh right yeah whoops this is this is the re-. although even a couple of the students aren't too thrilled about it <laughs> there's kids who are doing like really well and are like really sort of standing out tend to be the ones who are the most receptive to yeah um maybe i could improve because also they kind of want to they want to yeah. put the work in because they're enjoying it it's a difficult thing because you have people because i went to school with people like like university level that were almost too aware of how not amazing they were compared to like the world yeah that but that made them so that they became really apathetic and just did nothing mm. i was like well you're better than me so do something you have more talent than i do yeah and it's like that weird thing of like realizing that like you can be really talented, but you need to be driven. And I always think I'm more driven than I am remotely talented. I certainly find that your knowledge base is, you know, incredibly useful given the kind of platform Squiggly is, and that I know fuck all about how stop motion technically works, other than what I've picked up in, like, behind-the-scenes featurettes that come on DVDs and things. See, what you want to do is you want to move it, and then you take a photo, and then you move it a bit more. It's a tiny mouth. Another photo. You get it. You get the principle. <laughs> I think also the kind of... I remember, um, I forget who it was who went to interview him, but it was a guy, Isaac Wright, he was in The Box Trolls, the young kid, who I think is also in Games, Game of Thrones, he was really kind of into showing the interviewers how the puppets worked and how the replacement technology worked. And it's like, that much I actually do know, like, more or less. But uh, thanks for the help, kid. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't do that interview. I would have found that really hard. Smack the puppet out of his hand. Who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> Dude, I know. <laughs> but when something like Missing Link comes along, this is the new Leica film, which just came out in cinemas, uh, I think, worldwide now, certainly... Uh, England and the States and Europe. So when a film like this comes along, you're obviously my sort of first choice uh, as far as, you know, getting proper sort of interview time with the people. I think that's not even choice. That's my uh, God-given squiggly right. (laughs) Anything like her, give it mine. I get first refusal. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Also, of course, you know, you know the subject matter very well, sort of in and out academically you know it's something that you're really involved with you know these sort of advancements and stop motion technologies and whatnot you've given talks on the subject at academic (laughs) conferences i think uh, there's another one coming up so i think that also you're kind of a, a, a gift to the people being interviewed because it's not just someone coming in and being like so do you draw it or is it all done by computers awkward well you know i mean that's as glib as that sounds the number of people who are kind of we were talking about this earlier in the podcast about this kind of ongoing thing about like how people generally like in the general public are struggling to sort of differentiate between live action and animation when it comes to these new disney remakes and really since like day one or certainly since paranorman 
people really struggled with Leica to kind of work out what it was like they were looking at. And even I, I think mm. that first Paranorman footage, because they had so blurred the lines of CG and fabrication, I was a little kind of like, well, what is this like a mix? Is it sort of CG? And There's a lot to do with stop motion and this new technology and you know the audience does care and they the eye is very sophisticated but it it is becoming harder but if you really look you can't tell mm. where the stop motion ends and the cg begins but you know we have very sophisticated like not to tutorial and i was like we're really smart but we we know because we spent our entire life just watching cartoons and analyzing it and watching no. making up but it is it's really difficult to tell but also i it doesn't really matter as long as it looks good mm. it's when it distracts and you're like this doesn't look good yeah. that that's a problem so things like Tintin and Polar Express where they sort of like made it too real and it's kind of creepy and that's actually too real but not real enough in the crucial areas well it, it's the fact it's the fact that it distracts yeah. and that's the only thing that animation shouldn't do it shouldn't detract from the story or the object or the thing you're trying to tell that's really the main objective and as someone that like also a really bad thing to say someone that makes films and animation narrative has never been the interesting part to me it's always the process mm. but actually weirdly now being on a phd where the, the whole point of it is to be obsessed with the practice and not care about the narrative i found i've cared i care so much about the narrative and i have to keep talking people around to being like but it's film so it yeah. is all about the narrative you would never get hired to do a job and you would never do anything if it wasn't about the narrative or the design and how the design pushed the narrative forward. Yeah. So it's a really weird position to be in, even though technically it should be like my dream to yeah. not have to worry about the narrative because that's never a thing. Like you're never producing a film where you're not worried about the narrative or how the story works or how the design or the puppet or the whatever yeah. furthers the narrative or the the audience response to a character yeah and also i guess that isn't really the the concern of most people who work on animated features or series they're usually like the greater percentage of the crew aren't going to have that kind of creative investment it's not their child it's not their property um no, so it's easier but you know when you're working on a dud like uh yeah, but they're higher. That's that's why they're You know, they might be a specialist in silicon or armature building, especially. But particularly armature building, like even though technically your skill set is like soldering and cutting and doing all that kind of technical side of it, you would only create an armature if it really need. Like you wouldn't give it shoulder blades if it wasn't going to be needing to reach and do stuff. You wouldn't add extra complexity to the thing if it didn't need it. No. That sort of brings us around to Missing Link, in a sense, because uh, we're talking to Chris Butler, who was the director, uh, also the writer, and the story for him is enormously important. And designer, yeah. So, you know, he's got his hands all over it, but the story is going to be enormously important to him. I know you guys talk a little bit about that element of it and uh, his own process which is uh, always good to hear i think you know it's it's great to talk to directors about a film but when it's someone who has done all these other roles as well and you get that sort of extra perspective on how the film a you know what it's meant to represent on a story level but also how it visually represents it 
all sort of you know rolled up with the direction that's even better so that's uh we've had him on before but <laughs> good to have him back he was here for paranorman quite a while ago yes but you know what did you think of the film it's wonderful yeah it's very colorful very visually stunning i think it's like their most elaborate film like it's the one they've made the most new scenes individual sets all this yeah. co- it's insane like it's just it's kind of the like thing they at each film yeah they want to push it more so i think they're sort of and i don't mean this in like a negative way but they their ability to be like the first film to do blah, 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 that's starting to become harder to do because obviously with every film they do something bigger yeah. um, and it's just becoming a bit insane now but also what they're doing is they're becoming more nuanced in the thing that is like the new thing they've ever done kind of thing like so like with uh, Kubo it was like the biggest puppet ever made was the skeleton yeah. and I sort of asked him at one point about this and he's like I don't think there was anything particularly like the first whatever mm-hmm. film in this film but it's definitely the most like complex in terms of like set bills because i think it wasn't like 190 individual sets or something ridiculous and some of them are for like shots at like five ten seconds (laughs) and they're like as big as a room and you're like why it's it's almost heartbreaking (laughs) but But what what i find sort of insane i mean not that i want them to do this but like the very very distant parts of the set will be obviously cg Mm. but they'll make all these massive sets physically for like a 10 second shot but it does it does give something to it. There is a tangibility, there is a sense of space and time and shadow and lighting that even the most complex CG you can still cut it still doesn't feel right or maybe yeah. it gives something to the animator. Like it makes them feel more Yeah, in, the set in, is a set. And it's yeah. just it's it's a place, it's there. It just feels very sort of immediately like more comfortable to look at, you know. Mm. Just like any puppet versus a CG figure, no matter how well composited in or rendered out. It just doesn't quite feel right. There's, like, I think I've written about it in the past. It's this Atmos on set that you get that is just not quite right. And I think it's something like Travis Knight or Chris Butler, I forget who, said in a book once about, like, how it's that real Atmos vibe and the the actual physical being in a space that gives it that wow. And then the other two things that were sort of new, obviously they haven't really, they couldn't really push the free printing side of things amazingly more than they did in Kubo. But I think they've updated, they've either updated the printer or the filament or something, uh, not filament, the the printing material. Mm-hmm. The colouring is. The colouring's yeah. a little bit more sensitive, I guess, to the design. Okay. And I think there's something to be said about how now that they know what they can do, the design seems to have been thought of for the for the process rather than the process having to meet the design needs mm-hmm. and it's and not to say that they've like shied away from doing anything because the design is very weird and unusual and isn't like any of their other films once again like that's kind of like the consistent thing is that they're never consistently the same yeah. like you can tell they're like a film because there's a quality to that 3d printed way of layering in colors mm-hmm. into the face that's very different to the way Ardman or anyone else does it but it's still very very different like you know how like everything Ardman does kind of looks very similar yeah like round heads very they've got their like house style for the yeah, yeah. It, and even though it's like it's not technically wasn't from it's all kind of the same like big bulbous eyes uh, yeah flat skin face like there's a kind of hybrid of 
I think Peter and Nick's yeah, and it, styles and it's because point. it's meant to look like plasticine even when it isn't. Yeah. Uh, where Lycra obviously doesn't want or need to do that. Like they don't pretend like their stuff's made out of plasticine. But you know, it's what's unique about it. And so we have like a cheat sheet. Of facts. Um, each proper utilised a unique jetpack, a remote buckle device fitted to the hips and the small of the back, which allowed for very small increment movements by the animator. Yeah, what what does jetpack mean so, in that context? So I think what they mean, or what they've done, is that they've got like this like little gas cushion, so that the movement isn't like, you touch it and then you move it a bit, and you touch it, it's really, really precise. Right, okay. I don't know why <laughs> you would necessarily... Well, I guess just to be that precise. Yeah, and yeah, um, to be honest, you can see it. Like, the smoothness of the animation. Hmm. And I mean, they're always... You always think of them as being hyper-smooth. So, sorry, to, but what's the actual device then? Like, what does it connect to? I guess a gas cylinder. But then how does that get to the, the joints or whatever to move them? Well, it says here that they're in uh, their hips and the small of their back. So it'd be like a bag and then like a metal plate and a metal plate. And so you would release the air through a tube. And so that uh, would allow it to sandwich down. Okay. And so maybe there's a rod inside that allows it so it doesn't like sway about in the bag, on the bag. So this is, you've not seen this. I have action. no idea what this actually looks okay. like. And maybe you've just invented something like even more <laughs> efficient. No, God Christ. I don't know why anyone would do this. Like an accordion. <laughs> like, I don't really know. But that's what it says. It says it's a unique jetpack. Unique jetpack. With a turnbuckle device. So that would mean that they would probably have something that would pull it apart. Right, okay. But I guess essentially that's, you know, it's something that they've put together to make that movement exceptionally smooth and minute in its detail. And the design work in this was also pretty sort of interesting. Like the way in which the proportions are kind of elongated and stretched. And, uh, yeah, according to these production notes, it was going by the rule of thirds, which generally isn't a character design principle. It's more for composition. Yeah. So I guess they, they, you know, have two thirds stretchy and then one third squishy. Yeah, I don't really see that myself. Yeah, no, um, I I, I imagine that is what they did, but I just don't see it in the actual... like, I can't think of that being in the film because they're all just basically, like I said in the review, it's basically like they're all just squashed. Certainly for the Explorer character, if you because this is a picture of a full body shot, if you take off his jacket, his legs up to like his ass would be two thirds. Yeah. And then like the torso and the head is one third. So I'm not sure if it applies to all the characters, but certainly that seems to be a principle that they're sort of going by for the main character. Comparatively, the Sasquatch, Susan, is more sort of evenly proportioned, I guess. I just found it interesting that, you know, they'd apply a kind of design principle that's more about composition to the actual character design. You normally refer, if you're going to refer to that in anything, it'd normally be backgrounds or, like you said, composition, like setting out the scene. Poster design. Well, my interest was certainly piqued uh, hearing your chat with Chris, so why don't we share that with the squiggly audience now? Alrighty. Alright. Because you used to be an animator, didn't you? Oh, well, a long, long time ago. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. (laughs) So. Don't take me that far back. (laughs) I I started out in 2D animation. I I didn't really... Animation wasn't my thing. I think I I was more 
definitely storyboarding and design. Um, I prefer to watch other people animate and suffer that misery. Yeah, through uh, osmosis. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's a different mindset. I am more of the, the, the global view, yeah. and I think that's important for a director, having the ability to step back constantly and not worry so much about like how many millimeters that eye has moved mm. and worry more about how, where's the story at, yeah. you know? Where, what is important about this shot or this scene? Um, and I think animators are way more, mm. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. puppet makers. Like yeah, exactly. Like, but this uh, this scene doesn't quite line up, and you're like, yeah, but no one's going to see that. Yeah. In a million that's, years. That's the hope. Yeah. So uh, this is a huge deal for me because I'm massively into your work, especially oh, cool. uh, Paranorman. Oh, cool. Thank you. Basically, that scene with um, Norman and Aggie, Aggie in the white space. It was a huge influence on. Oh, that's great. At uh, when I was doing my undergrad. So. Oh, thank you. I used to just watch that on repeat. Oh yeah, I love that scene. Yes, and following on from like Norman Missing Link is clearly quite different, but has that kind of same. I always find it, it's a really hard theme to explain, but like anything to do with like the paranormal and mystery, like the the books that you have as a kid, like the free trio that's like ghosts. Yeah. Like <laughs> the Nas- like Sasquatch. And, yeah. And like yeah combustion. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's me. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. Actually, I was doing an interview the other day and. Um, and I said, basically, this movie is everything that I loved as a kid. And they said, but you said the same thing about Paranorman. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I, okay, world. zombies, horror movies, monsters, Sherlock Holmes, Indiana Jones. That's my childhood. Yep. yep, yep. Done. <laughs> Although <laughs> it can't get nothing left now. Oh, no. <laughs> for the next one. <laughs> More ghosts. Go- mm, More I haven't paranormal. done sci-fi yet. <laughs> Yeah, mm. it's the era of the sci-fi. Yeah, maybe. New Ardman film sci-fi, so... Ah. Yeah. Maybe you could go down that bent. Who knows? Everything seems to come in um, waves. It, it really does. And it's always really annoying because it's like, did you all have a meeting? Like, some higher I, up I thing? know, when I heard about that, like three other Yeti movies, I'm like, are you yeah. kidding me? Because there was um, Smallfoot, wasn't there? Smallfoot, well. yeah. I remember this being launched at the same time and being like, Really? And then there's DreamWorks too. Like they've got um, a Yeti movie coming out. Oh. The thing is, though, because I always worry about it. And yeah. the, and the thing is, like I started writing this 15 years or more ago. So there's like no chance that you know we got together and planned it. <laughs> you know, I would like, imagine there's like some Hollywood exec that like everyone goes to, like a shaman. Goes to, this year, pirates. Yeah, right. Go and make a pirate film. Right. No, there's no. I think it's just zeitgeist stuff. I think all of us who, you know, anyone who grows up within a certain decade, they are influenced by the same stuff. Yeah. And when they become of an age to start making movies, where there's a lot of that. That I think. I think that's part of what it is. Maybe. Mm. Yeah. Maybe. I think it's like if there's been long enough to period of time between things as well. Yeah. Like we haven't had that in a while. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. And then everyone's all like, "Oh, we all have the same idea." Yeah. But then it's that kind of there's a kind of similar thing with like three D printing and stop motion. There's like this kind of weird parallel thinking thing that sort of happened across the land. Yeah. And so lots of different studios were doing it at the same time. Yeah. And so there's not this like pinpoint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a it is a weird happened. thing. Yeah. But it's just everything together. Yeah. In one go. Yeah. Um, so is that where the inspiration for this film came from? Just your collection My, of childhood books pretty, pretty much I, I remember thinking wouldn't it be cool if we had a stop motion Indiana Jones mm. um, and 
I tend to have like a dozen or so ideas. That's it. Yeah. That's for the whole of my life. There's only like a dozen ideas, but I just kind of dip in into them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was one that I was working on for quite a while. I was obsessed with Sherlock Holmes. So I knew I wanted to do like a Victorian era um, adventure. Mm-hmm. I was kind of nodding to Conan Doyle and Jules Verne and all that. Um, but I didn't want to do steampunk. Yeah, okay. I wanted it to be Victorian, but not kind of like that arch fantasy Victorian. I wanted it to, to be... I, I, I love history. Mm-hmm. Big history buff. So I think... Everything I do has that element. I mean, even paranormal with the you know the the witch trials and yes, yeah, yeah. You know, I think if if you hook onto something real, mm-hmm. then it can make your story, no matter how fantastical, it can make it more compelling. Yeah, I think I was going, one of the questions I was going to ask was about um, when you have like, it's quite hard to develop a character, multiple characters, in that short process, and how do you go about doing that from a scripting and directing point of view? When I'm writing. I, I know what I'm trying to say thematically. I might start with the idea of like, oh, I want to do an adventure movie and I want it to be Victorian. But then I think like, but what, what's it about? And in this case, I knew I wanted it to be about friendship mm-hmm. and identity. And I think once you've got those, those, those themes, then, and you've got your setting, then it's pretty easy for things to fall into place. And oftentimes when I'm, when I'm writing a character, it, uh, they kind of write themselves. Just, uh, I guess there's a lot of crap up here. <laughs> and, you know, it's, 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 it's coming out of there. A big part of it also is, you know, I start with what's on the page and I've got a certain idea of a character. But then when you enlist the actor and they get into the recording booth, they bring a whole other side to that. And that's wonderful to me is, you know, when an actor reads a script, they are creating that character for themselves. Mm-hmm. And it not doesn't necessarily meet with my idea. It will in certain instances but not always and that's the that's the most interesting thing is where they'll read a line in a completely different way from what I expected but it gives a, a, a different perspective on a character and so it starts to I, I'll watch the my babies start to walk out into the world and, and become their own yeah have become their own identities I like that mm-hmm. um, it's it feels like it's a healthy evolution of a character but you mentioned earlier um, your favorite scene from Paranorman um, the writing process for me nearly always involves uh, writing the ending of the movie first. And because I think a lot of what I do is about um, character dynamics, character interaction, that's a, a lot to, to do with it. So I wrote that argument between Norman and Aggie first, mm-hmm. and then the whole movie became working up to that. Similar thing with Missing Link, I, I, I wrote the climax first. And I think that always, so I always knew where I was headed with the characters. Mm. You're clearly like a very visual, obviously you come from a visual background, yeah. you came from storyboarding, so you have a very visual, Yeah. and you build around that. I, I similarly always have like one very strong set or shot I want to do, and then I'm like, oh, I have to build a story around this <laughs> one shot, um, which yeah. can sometimes be a struggle. Yeah, I think, for me, that... that I've got a little movie playing in my head when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I, it only kind of dawned on me today, actually, talking to someone else. It's like, I don't know whether other writers have that. 
I have no idea. But that's certainly when I'm writing, I'm, uh, there's a little movie playing in my head. Mm. And I think that comes from being a story artist. Yeah. Probably. It definitely helps me. And, and you, you know, to your point, at the start, I, um, I'll often work with, when you're in development on a project like this, you, you're often working with just a, a handful of artists. Um, in this case, it was maybe like two concept artists. Um, and I'll do some drawings and you'll paint them up. And this almost like, it becomes like this uh, handful of like iconic images that's, that sum up the movie to you. Mm-hmm. There's one I did of Lionel in his study um, that was almost like the eureka moment for the look of the movie for me. Okay. But there was also one that I did um, with an artist at the studio. I drew it, he painted it. And it was just Lionel riding in front of this wall of giant fallen logs and that's in the movie mm, that yeah, became a shot. shot yeah there was something about that image that's that summed up so much of what i was trying to do in the movie a sense of scale mm. um, bold graphics and color and even like and that we did that in like the first few weeks mm. but it's still that sensibility survived there's a really i mean all, paranormal had this as well but you have a really strong color identity in your films yeah that sort of sets your two main major films apart from the other three and it's that very like stark contrast in colour so like obviously yeah. um, Link is orange and he's in the forest that's predominantly blue yeah yeah because he doesn't fit in yes there ah, you go symbolism yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, scene. but from a from because you also were the lead designer on this as well weren't you I was uh, I guess officially I'm character designer. It was a difficult one to call, to be honest, because um, on Paranorman it was pretty easy. I saw Heidi Smith's work and instantly I was like, that's, that's what the characters look like. Mm. On this one, I looked around for a long time and I didn't have that same moment, but I did have some initial sketches from years and years ago that I'd done and people were responding to them very favorably, particularly one of Link. Mm-hmm. Everyone seemed to love it. So I was like, I'm not gonna fight this. I'm, I'm gonna, because that's what I originally felt. Yeah. I was just waiting for someone to change my mind. I did get the opportunity to work with Warwick Johnson Cadwell, who is, I yeah, so is. he's, uh, lovely. yeah. I'm, really I'm, long, that explains then why there's like this kind yes. of long squish. Yes. And there's a, there's, it, it's just incredibly idiosyncratic. There's a lot of asymmetry to his mm. work, which I didn't want on this one because I had it in Paranorman. Yeah. But what I did have from him was like this kind of... Um, I can really see it now. Yeah, there's like a wild um, observational um, uh, cartooniness. Mm. And I wanted to incorporate that. So working with him really helped. It inspired me. And I had somewhere to go with my initial sketches. On that point, like, what kind of technical things did you have to come up with in order to get that visual style? Like, what new things did you mean in terms of making the puppets? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm probably not the most popular director um, for stop motion people because I think stylistically I create characters that are not easy to make as mm. puppets in terms of their proportions. And for animators, that becomes difficult as well because we are striving for the illusion of life in our animation. We're not doing highly stylized animation. Mm-hmm. We have highly stylized puppets, but they move like real people. Yeah. And that's not easy. No. So I'm probably not the most popular. 
what it does mean is that we we have to really innovate in the, the construction of these puppets. Link, as an example, is the most complex puppet we've ever made because I wanted them to do all this very uh, realistic, active uh, stuff. That's not easy when it's when it's this avocado-shaped lump of silicon. Yeah. You know, so they had to come up with technically all kinds of innovations in order to make that hair-covered animal be able to bend and, and, and move and twist because silicon very quickly just becomes um, kind of ugly looking if it creases in the wrong way. Mm. So I think just in terms of engineering, I was asking a lot from the puppet makers. Did you develop like a squash and stretch armature inside, wasn't it? Y- yeah, we had squash and stretch. We also had breathers. Mm. Um, we used a lot of jetpacks. Okay. which is a, uh, a rig that goes on the back of a puppet that allows for tiny increments of movement that, so they don't have to constantly... Christ. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Link himself, you know, he's he doesn't have a neck. Yes. So he has a cowl. Um, and they came up with this hugely elaborate and complex uh, understructure so that all those tiles of fur could move against each other and not bunch up or crease or... I mean, it's crazy stuff, mm. and I, I um, if any of them read this, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> for ruining their lives. I was going to say, because Leica is sort of known for this kind of innovation and being able to push things to the extreme, I was going to ask if it was ever slightly daunting, but I guess not, not really. It, it is. I mean, I, I, I'm a, because I know the way things work, I'm aware of it, mm. but they've never inhibited my, my creativity as a writer. Mm. In fact, they encouraged me not to think about how it's going to be done which is which is great as a writer uh, there are times when i'm thinking oh, i shouldn't be writing this. Yeah. this this is going to be difficult but we figure it out we figure out a way and because of the innovations that we've made on the last four movies we're able to make a movie as as big as missing link mm-hmm. and i don't think anyone could have made that movie in stop motion 10 years ago no Again, you sort of go against sorry. a lot of the like cardinal sins. I know, like so much. I was just baffled by how much. It's like this is an at sea. Why is there so much water? <laughs> no. There's so much water. Like forty yeah. percent of the film is in water, I and know. like not just a little bit of water, but the entire sea. Yeah, and like a boat is like horizontal. At yeah, one point. I was just like, don't <laughs> even. No, why? I, but again, oh, you know, it's oh. like because the the water was so so successfully done in Kubo, it made yeah. me think, yeah. Okay, we can do this. We can do this for longer. Yeah, <laughs> more complicated. <laughs> and it, obviously the, the main thing like is sort of known for, other than obviously it's films and it's narrative, is the introduction of 3D printing into faces and also this development of colour, pigmentation. Yeah. And it really felt in this film that they've finally gone, ah, okay, we know what we're doing with this and you've used it in a really subtle but pleasant way that's not jarring. But do you, how do you feel like that ability for creating such subtle colouring and movement affects stop motion as a medium as a whole? Well, you know, I think, I think part of the ambition behind it is, is not to create something where, where you see the different technology at work. As mm. cool as it is, yeah. you, you don't want the general audience to go in and, and be looking at look how cool that puppet is or look mm. how cool that part is and look how cool the printed faces are. You want them to be compelled by the story and the characters and forget about how it's done. Mm. So I think it 
part of the technological reach for us is not just how much can we innovate in each process, but it's like how can we fit them together really well. Mm-hmm. I also think part of it is because of um, where we've come from, and and it's you know a lot of it's the same crew. We we're, we've just been honing our skills um, over the last four movies, so I think we've we've come to a place where we're just you know these people are really good at it i think for the you you mentioned the facial animation there's always a bunch of innovations uh on these movies there's always something that we haven't tried before with this one um i think it's it's harder to put your finger on exactly what you know there's no 16 foot skeleton in this yeah there is a giant elephant but for me it's the little things not so little i guess when you think about it but like the facial animation in previous movies, it was a, a library system. So okay. you come up with all these subtle variations on mouth movements or eyebrow movements, and you create a kit. Yeah. Um, and you build sentences, dialogue, out of those kits. And that's worked great for us. But I wanted more subtlety of performance to match the subtlety of performance that we've attained with the puppets. Yeah. So every shot in this movie is bespoke facial animation. There's no, there's no kit system. Every every shot was animated specific to that shot. Mm-hmm. So every face is spe- specific to a certain line of dialogue. It's not it's never reused, or very very few of them are reused. Mm-hmm. So that allowed us for a level of uh, nuance and sophistication that, that we've always wanted, but we've never had before. Mm-hmm. Even to the point where there's a shot where um, Lionel is listening to Link. And his lips part and his lips stick together slightly. Mm. Um, just that level of subtlety. Weirdly enough, when the CG guys got that shot, they cleaned it all off. Oh, okay. Because they thought it was a mistake. <laughs> it was like, put it back. That's supposed to be there. <laughs> the scale of that isn't yeah. mind-bogglingly difficult to comprehend. Yeah. Uh, so when it came to like the animation and the puppet department, what kind of direction did you give them in regards to what you wanted from the movement for? performance was it just the subtlety but there is you know aspects of because it is an animation there's cartoon aspects to it um one of the things that i did on this one that i hadn't done before was um you know they get a bunch of designs and a lot of those i was responsible for but we we always work with kent melton who is the god amongst uh, animation sculptors um, so they work very closely with the sculpts that he does, um, and he has a small team as well. Uh, but one of the things that I did was I created books of what that character had to do in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd, so I'd pull um, poses from storyboards or sketches, and we put together like booklets and gave them to the puppet department so they could see at any point this character has to be able to do that or this character yeah i mean not not so much a bible Mm. because a lot of these drawings are really kind of weird and goofy and hardly any of them are are on model but it just gave these people a hint of the scope of, of what was expected from these characters so that that was slightly different i mean at the start i'm constantly working with these guys a big part of it at the start is also the puppet department works incredibly closely with the um, animation supervisor because I am approaching it from a design point of view. I'm not a stop motion animator. So I can tell them or I can give them a, a design or an idea, but I don't know what that actually means 
when you're coming to move this thing. So they're from the armature on, they are working day in, day out with the animation supervisor and a, some early animators. And they're moving, they're testing this stuff. They're moving it around. We'll come up with prototypes of puppets. Occasionally along the way, the designs have to change. They have to evolve. You might have to lose a few inches here or gain a few inches here. Um, it is a process. Mm -hmm. These things are physical things. You can't you can't cheat them. Yeah. You know they have to exist in three dimensions in the real world, and the costumes are part of that too. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't just uh, you know create a naked puppet and then dress it. The costumes are part of the design, and all the costumes have to animate too. Yeah. So that means our costume designer doesn't just understand costume design they have to understand costume animatability yeah. as well and how to technically construct these things so what was the biggest challenge for you on this film question. getting it made um <laughs> the size the size and scale it, uh, there was lots of there's always lots of challenges to these things but this one was just so big bigger than any stop motion movie before and it's a travelogue, so everywhere we go is somewhere new. We're never really repeating ourselves. We're never going back somewhere, not often. So that's a lot of sets. And I wanted to approach it with a live-action sensibility as well. So there's a lot of epic shots. And though we lean very heavily on our digital effects department, everything they do is informed by physical assets. So if we're doing a wide shot of the Himalayas, we will build a miniature of those mountains and give it to the digital department and they will then paint it and, and comp it and, and all that. They'll pretty it up and make it look perfect. But that's a lot of work yeah. we're talking about. Actually, I don't know why I'm mentioning numbers because I don't ever remember any of them. But it's just the, the size of the thing. Yeah, you know? there's so many sets. Yeah, and, and background characters. Because yes. if you're traveling around the world and you're going to New York and London and the Himalayas, all these places have to be populated. Otherwise, it's a very different kind of movie. And that you can't do practically. Mm -hmm. You can't do with physical puppets. You have to have CG extras, but you want them to fit into the same fabric as the, as the practical assets. So it's a, a lot to juggle. It's a lot to ask mm -hmm. of people. And the action sequences as well, hugely challenging. Again, I wanted to approach them with a live action sensibility and that meant lots of quick cuts. And quick cuts don't mean anything to us because they still take the same amount of setup as, yeah. a, as a long cut. So just logistically, it was a lot to mm -hmm. ask for, but we, we, you know, we get there. What was the best bit? The best bit? The best bit. Oh, I love I loved lots of different things. I love the writing part, personally. I love the recording, working with the actors and seeing the, the, these characters become something else. I love seeing shots come in, in in dailies. When you first see a puppet that was a character that existed in your head moving and speaking for the first time, it's magical. You know, I, I love this process overall. I've watched this movie like every week for the past five years. <laughs> I've watched it evolve and I still like it. So, you know, there's something... Yeah, there's, there's something to be said for that, you know. I... I love telling stories, so I, 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 every part of it is challenging, but every part of it is worth it. That was Chris Butler, director, writer, and designer for Missing Link, uh, the latest stop-motion feature film extravaganza from Leica Studios. It's out in cinemas now. Thanks very much to Chris for being on the podcast, and thank you, Laura Beth, for doing the interview. 
You're welcome. Always a pleasure. And so we've come to the end of another rip-roaring episode of the Squiggly Podcast. We've ripped, we've roared, and we have... We've done a podcast. Indeed, we've contributed. Mm -hmm. A faint smattering of plugs before I bid you farewell. This Saturday, April 20th, my film Sunscapades will be screening at the Brussels International Fantasy, Fantastic Thriller and Science Fiction Film Festival, or BIF for short. It'll be part of a best-of program put together by the Brussels Independent Short Film Festival, at which it screened back in January. This one will be at 10pm at the Beaux-Arts Centre for Fine Arts. Ooh, if that sounds like your cup of tea, there's more info and tickets available at bifff.net. Then on the following Thursday, April 25th, the film will be back in Canada for the 16th Calgary Underground Film Festival. Not as part of a shorts program for a change, but rather it's the opening cartoon before the live-action independent feature Assassinaut, which looks like a lot of fun. This will be at 9.30pm at the Globe Cinema, where there will also be a repeat screening of both on Saturday the 27th at 4.15pm. The festival website is calgaryundergroundfilm.org. If you're in the area, check it out. Not a whole heap else going on for me. Thanks very much to Chris Butler, director of Missing Link, and to Justin K. Thompson, production designer for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Missing Link is out in cinemas now. Once again, you can check out uh, our giveaway over on squiggly.co.uk. As well as that fantastic website, we are, of course, also on Twitter at Squiggly and Instagram at Squiggly Animation uh, and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine, all the main ones. So uh, like us, follow us, give us some attention. We're needy. <laughs> I'm also on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. And I think that's all of it. That is an exhaustive list, Ben. Great. Well, get cracking, folks. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.